2: So at the crack of dawn, I had called the cab and had it meet me at like 4 a.m. And I had to, as I'm escaping, I'm literally like scavenging it, trying to keep minimum sound. And then I uh, I get to the precipice and I, and I had to, you know, I go down the, the mountain. It's about a mile and a half down the road to get to the place where the cab's going to meet me. But it's a, it's a decent drop and it's dark as hell. And then I just started to run. And you know it's like when you're running, you think someone's maybe you know you start hearing things. You're like, "Someone's coming after!" But uh, I bolted. It was like a prison break.
1: Holy mother, cult leader! We're back, Tyler. We're back. Can you even believe it?
0: I actually cannot, Liz. It has been a solid year, you
1: guys. We have missed you. It has been a journey to get here, but we did it. Season two of Was I in a Cult.
0: Yes, we took a year off. Hardly anything to pat ourselves on the back over, Liz, but we are back. (laughs) Now, before we get into the show, we want to thank you, our fans, for your undying support. It's truly because of you that this show will go on. And
1: on. No?
0: That's quite enough of that, Liz. (laughs) Do you even know the song I'm referencing? I believe it's some sort of fluffy song that is way ahead of my generation. Celine
1: Dion, Tyler. Get your shit together. Celine
0: Dion. Yes, I hear that in elevators.
1: Why don't you tell people who haven't listened to our show what we're all about? What is this show, Tyler?
0: Sure thing. Well, the title obviously is pretty self-explanatory. It is Was I in a Cult? But this features firsthand stories of individuals who were in and subsequently left cults. The tone of this show
1: is maybe atypical for a cult show because we do add levity and we do that with the full support of our guests.
0: Absolutely, because let's be honest, if you know cults, sometimes they can be flat out absurd. Like a UFO doomsday cult, perhaps? Perhaps. So
1: let's kick this thing off right (laughs) Welcome again to Was I in a Cult? I'm your host, Liz Iacuzzi.
0: And I'm Liz's ball boy, Tyler Meesum.
1: And now for today's guest, our dear friend and inspirational human, Mr. Hoyt Richards.
0: We had Hoyt in the studio where all three of us sat down and chatted. And he took us on a journey. From being a world-class model in the 80s. To his
1: life spent in a doomsday UFO cult.
0: Van Halen, Aliens, Fabio. Studio
1: 54, Cindy Crawford, Daring Escapes. This story has it all.
0: Like we often say on this show, you
1: can't make this shit up.
0: And that should be our new tagline.
1: Merch coming soon.
0: And Hoyt's story is so fantastic that we couldn't fit it into one episode. So folks, this is a three-parter.
1: I can't believe you're here.
0: I know. I still think your story is one of the best cult stories I've ever heard.
2: Well, I'll never be boring at cocktail parties. I know that. You know that, too. You can always drop the cult bomb at any moment. Personally, the only reason my story has gotten the attention it's gotten thus far is just because of my willingness and almost compulsion to tell it.
1: Well, that and he's a supermodel. But sure, Hoyt. We can call it your willingness.
0: Mm-hmm. He actually is a supermodel and he actually is very handsome.
1: Ridiculously good looking.
0: And he can turn left. But sadly, this is a podcast, so you can't see how super good looking this supermodel is.
1: Well then Hoyt, let's just hope your story is strong enough to stand on its own then. Without the eye candy.
2: And the group that I was in. And now I'm twenty years out from you know escaping for you to have to go back to that initial moment when you either encountered the group or the cult leader and start reevaluating your life with that new lens of, oh my God, I think I was being influenced and this was a cult. That is a terrifying scenario. Even though that is clearly the route to heal, most people will avoid it.
1: Now, Hoyt is a special guest because he is a trailblazer in cultic abuse awareness. Since he's been out, not only has he been telling his story, but he has dedicated a large portion of his life to giving back and helping others in their healing journey.
0: Oh, so he's good looking and a good person. Save some for the rest of us, Hoyt.
2: When I think back on how it all began for me, a lot of it was because uh, you could say that I was dealt a pretty winning hand in life. I was 16. I was good at at school. I was good at making friends. I was good at sports, and
1: you're really unattractive.
2: Well, I just uh, inherited the genes. I wear the costume. My parents did all the work. You know, I just I just wear the costume.
1: There's that damn humility,
0: Tyler. You are killing me, Hoyt.
2: Well, and 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 my point in, in raising that was by being dealt a winning hand. From from that perspective, I actually held a lot of insecurity around it because certain things seemed to come easier for me than the average person. So within that insecurity was this wonderment of like, well, what am I supposed to do with this, so to speak? I didn't have any sort of thing that I was really reaching for. I mean, I was just about like scoring touchdowns, drinking beer and chasing girls. I mean, that was my life at that point, right? And and in a a way, it was a very kind of incubated, wonderful life.
0: For frame of reference, this was about 1978.
2: So I met Freddie uh, on the beach on Nantucket when my family would summer. Nantucket's a a very special, nostalgic place for us and certainly not the place I thought I was going to meet a cult leader.
1: There once was a cult leader from Nantucket, Whose ego was as big as a bucket?
0: Uh, Liz is, of course, referring to the famous Nantucket limerick, which, if you don't know, oh
1: gosh, no, 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 no! Do not tell me you know some random knowledge on the origination of the limerick, Tyler.
0: As a matter of fact, Liz, the non-ribbled version of the Nantucket ditty dates back to 1902 when it was first published in the Princeton Tiger.
1: Tyler, Tyler, we're gonna lose listeners on our first episode back, man. Written
0: by Professor Dayton Voorhees.
1: Sorry, guys, there's no stopping. Here.
0: There once was a man from Nantucket who kept all his cash in a bucket, but his daughter named Nan ran away with a man, and as for the bucket, Nantucket. (laughs) It's a good one, but there are more Nantucket limericks out there, which I am not going to repeat on air.
1: Because they're dirty and about big dicks.
2: So at 16 in Nantucket, um, I was uh, painting houses for the summer job, and generally the the protocol was we would only paint the side of the house that was the sun was shining, so we could get suntan while we're doing it. And then we would take a break at lunch and go to the beach and see you know all the our our crew of friends and the girls. And then this one day when I'm at the beach, this tall, slender, you know, gentleman comes and puts his towel down next to me. I'd, I'd say he's probably in his mid thirties at that point. So he was um, brown-haired, light eyes about six foot tall, slender, yeah, kind of like a yoga-type body, and these yeah, these piercing kind of blue eyes. And they had actually told me about this guy, Freddie, who was on the island, and he was kind of presented as someone who was a, a flashback to the 60s and the kind of far-out things in astrology and, and uh, mysticism and that sort of thing.
1: Oh, so perhaps he's the man from Nantucket whose dick was so big he could...
2: Frederick von Meers is how I met him. His real name was Freddie Myers from Brooklyn. But uh, when I met Frederick, uh, I now call him Freddy just because I know he would hate that. And he put this towel on next to mine and it just immediately starts engaging me in the conversation. And I appreciated the fact that he didn't talk down to me. And I look, looking back on it now, he would preface certain things by saying... Well, I can tell you're very smart, so you don't understand this. And and you don't realize how subtle of a manipulation that is. And, you know, you, it makes you not question anything because someone's already given you a compliment on how smart you are. You can't go, well, wait, I don't I don't know, have any idea what you're talking about.
0: Great. Now I'm gonna question every compliment I've ever received. You have beautiful eyes, Tyler. Liar.
2: And he started going into this kind of philosophy and pitchy head about For every reaction, there would be an equal and opposite reaction, and there would be an accountability to everything that you did in your life. And the idea of reincarnation was really appealing to me. And at 16, these are not ideas or concepts I would really talk to my peers about. So I'm from a a suburban family from outside of Philadelphia. I'm one of six children. Number four, they say the middle children always have a bit of a challenge.
1: So, is that really a thing, middle child syndrome? I personally wouldn't know. I'm the oldest. I just knew how to boss my siblings around.
0: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So, okay. So, in my research, I did find that middle child syndrome is the belief that middle children are excluded, ignored, or even outright neglected. And they're often left with the feeling of being overshadowed, coming to believe that their parents don't care about them. And as adults, this can often leave middle children with an inferiority complex and a constant need to grab attention from those around them.
1: Is this still information you gleaned from your research, Tyler?
0: I have three older siblings, and I have three younger siblings.
1: Doesn't get much more middle than that.
2: I think when you're in a family of six, you're always kind of fighting for your voice to be heard. And, and uh, you know, that was part of it. My father was an engineer. We, we were kind of on that cusp of being comfortable but never never feeling wealthy. My mother you know, is an extraordinary woman, kind-hearted, very, very giving, but also very strict. So she had a very strong idea for what all her kids were going to be. I quickly learned that if I wanted to get the love that I wanted from my mother, I had to try to become what she said she expected me to be. And it kind of built this people-pleasing personality that I developed. That was definitely a prerequisite to kind of set me up for this type of experience that I had coming down the road.
0: And so that was Hoyt, handsome, athletic, smart, and social. A middle child
1: with a developing urge to please.
0: And when he met Freddie,
1: you mean Frederick von Miers?
2: He went on this kind of hour and a half, maybe two hours, of dissertation. It was a very non-plus experience other than, oh, I finally had a chance to meet this guy Freddie, who's on the island. And then because the island's so small, he didn't even drive. He had a bicycle. I would just see him from time to time. And he was kind of known for throwing parties on the island. So he invited me and he even asked, like, what kind of beer do you like? And I'm just thinking, opportunity for free beer. This is awesome.
1: I don't blame him. I mean, I'm sure I ended up in a lot of precarious situations in my youth in the name of free beer.
0: Little reminder, nothing is ever truly free.
2: And uh, so ended up at one of his parties, and it was a very eclectic group, anywhere from 16-year-olds like myself all the way up to like 70, 80-year-olds, you know, people from New York. And so it was was an interesting crowd, but I was just there for the beer. And then he would kind of whip out his ephemeris. It's kind of his party trick.
1: And no... That's not an innuendo, ladies and gentlemen. Not
0: everything is a sexual innuendo, Liz. <laughs> an ephemeris is a table. It's a chart of sorts. It's used in astronomy and celestial navigation. Which is
1: also not an innuendo, unfortunately. Sheesh,
0: Liz. No, it is not. The same chart is used in astrology to read your horoscope. Now, Freddie had done these readings for a number of people, including Hoyt's friends.
1: But he hadn't yet offered it up to Hoyt.
2: I remember being, feeling a bit jilted that I hadn't, he hadn't done the, and when he finally did do it, it was kind of a big deal. And that, that was a pattern that, that I watched him implement a few times of doing something that seemed to be fun and then withholding it from you until the time that he thought it was most important to kind of, you know, give you that opportunity to have that experience.
1: Freddie would often charge people a meager fee to read their horoscope, but how he survived was something of a mystery.
2: I don't know how Freddie was making money. He was sustaining himself for years and years, but I have no idea how he's doing it. The way Freddie operated, he would stay at this house on India Street, which is a nice street just off the center of town, so it's a nice area. And he would invite all these friends and make them pay, and through what they paid him, he was able to stay there for free. But he ran it like a ship, where he would have a party almost every night, but then they would have to be up early, clean the whole place up, you know, restock the bar, get ready for the next night. And he actually had cards printed up, which would have the address of the place on India Street, and he would instruct his friends, find the beauties, and only the beauties, and invite them back, even if they have a friend who's not, just tell them, only them. Naturally, Hoyt made the cut. And
1: for the next three years, Hoyt would go back to Nantucket for the summer, and Freddie was there. It was basically a good time. Freddie threw a great party, and that was kind of it.
0: But then Hoyt graduated high school and was heading off to college.
2: Freddie was someone I associated with the summer. Once he found out that I was going to Princeton, which was in New Jersey, he said, oh, you should come to New York. You know, come with me and my friends. We go to Studio 54 and you have a great time. And so I'm 18 at that point, or 19. And at this point, my perception is I'm working him. Because here's this guy who's clearly a socialite and all these sort of things, but I can use this to kind of take my friends. We go up and go to Studio 54. Like, who hasn't heard of Studio 54?
1: For those who don't know, the famous Studio 54 was a nightclub that opened in the late 70s in midtown Manhattan and was known for their very exclusive VIP guest list. Many an A-lister party there.
0: It was the best of body New York in the early 80s.
1: And where else could Cher go to rip a line off Andy Warhol's Nantucket?
0: But the bottom line is this. Hoyt is 19, and he had prime access to perhaps the hottest club ever.
1: There isn't a listener here that wouldn't have jumped at that opportunity.
2: So we would go to Studio 54, and there would be the massive crowd outside, just like you've seen in the movies, trying to get through the door. But because he knew the doorman, and he'd kind of wave, and there would be sometimes 10 20 people in our posse, and we would just go right in. And my first experience going into Studio 54 was like Alice in Wonderland walking through the looking glass. Like, this girl was greeting us wearing nothing but, like, a Scotch tape bikini. I mean, you walk into this realm, and it's like it has a heartbeat. I mean, I can't even describe the way the bass would play, and it was very theatrical. And literally, as the night would go on, you would see people fucking on the dance floor... There were you know, drugs around. Eventually, when I got to go there many more times, I got invited down to the VIP section, which is like this underground kind of garage. And uh, you know, there were like all the celebrities like, with like a pile of cocaine on a table. and Wise Manelli giving some guy a, a BJ. And, you know, just like it was surreal. I met I met Truman Capote and, and, and uh, Andy Warhol. I, I went to dinner with Andy Warhol probably half a dozen times. So it was this whole opening into a world that I never imagined.
1: And every good party has an after party. But this one was maybe not what you'd expect.
2: What ended up happening is we would usually add to our posse. And then at the end of the night, like six in the morning, we'd go back to the apartment and we'd have tea and talk about spiritual ideas. And we'd talk to like, literally, the light would come up and... It was strange, but I was like, where else am I going to have that experience? So that was my initial being drawn into his life in New York and and making trips when I could.
1: Right now, I don't don't see a cult. I just see a groovy man who's an astrology reader and throws some cool parties.
2: I think one of the things that's interesting about my story is it's very much like getting in on the ground floor of a startup. Like, I watched it become a cult. It was not a cult when I first met him, but I watched it all go down. So... This was the stage where he was just a narcissist with an entourage.
0: Hey, Liz. Did you know that the average human sheds over a million dead skin cells every hour? I
1: think I just shed over one million brain cells this past minute, Tyler.
0: Also, the brain makes up just 2% of our body weight but uses 20% of our energy, about 400 calories per day.
1: I'm glad I had that second frittata.
0: I could go on, Liz. Look, guys, just because someone
1: knows random facts about the body doesn't mean you should take their medical advice.
0: Nor should you go down the TikTok wormhole of questionable medical advice from the so-called experts. The
1: care you deserve should come from trusted professionals and not randos on the internet.
0: Or a podcast. And the best way to find these professionals is with ZocDoc.
1: ZocDoc helps you find expert doctors and medical professionals that specialize in the care that you need.
0: And deliver the type
1: of experience you want. ZocDoc is the only free app that lets you find and book doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, are available when you need them, and treat almost every condition under the sun.
0: With ZocDoc, there are no alarms and no surprises.
1: Choose from thousands of patient-reviewed doctors and specialists.
0: Browse doctor profiles, upload and verify your insurance information, and get the care you need. Go to ZocDoc.com slash and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours.
1: That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash ZocDoc.com slash inocult.
0: Hey, listeners, we did have a long hiatus, about a year to be exact, and we just want to let you know that if you did email us to share your cult story, we want to assure you that every single one of those emails is read by us.
1: If we haven't replied to you yet, it doesn't mean we won't or that we don't want you on the show. So please keep reaching out, guys.
0: So why haven't you replied, Liz? Have you been busy, pray tell? Something to share?
1: I I had a baby, Tyler.
0: Congratulations, Liz. had a
1: child. Thank you. I appreciate it. How's he doing? He's so sweet. He's the best thing in the whole entire world. And I'm so tired.
0: Keep the receipt because when he gets a little older, you might want to (laughs) return him. So congratulations and good luck.
1: Congratulations and good luck. What have you been up to in our hiatus, Tyler?
0: I've been making movies. I have a kick-ass documentary, a music-based documentary series that comes out in June.
1: Not going to plug it, Tyler.
0: Nope, not going to plug it again, are you? But
1: it's really good, guys. You should go watch it.
0: Yeah, but they don't know what the title is, Liz. How are they going to... You know what? Forget it. Let's just get back to our humble hero, Mr. Hoyt Richards.
1: He graduated high school with honors.
0: Of course he did.
1: Then went off to Princeton.
0: Oh, Princeton. Of course Hoyt went to Princeton. Was on the football team. You know, Ken Dahl doesn't hold a candle to Hoyt.
1: But unlike plastic figurines, Hoyt was a real person. And real people go through real shit sometimes.
2: When I got to Princeton, I played football. And then by junior year, I started really having the problems with my shoulders. I went to see the doctor in New York and he said, well, I can operate, but I can't guarantee you full mobility. So I was going to have, maybe not be able to play anymore. That's when I kind of went through an identity crisis.
1: And in swooped, Freddie, happy to help.
2: And he said, well, you should come up to New York. I, I go to Nantucket for the summer, but you can use my apartment. The idea of spending the summer in New York was exciting. And that did not go over with my family at all, you know, because I was always up with them in the summer. And that was where the rift started. But at the time, I was just seeing it as an opportunity. I I had a bicycle because I couldn't afford subways. I, I mean, I had no money.
0: But Freddie was giving him a free apartment.
1: There's that, quote, free
0: word again. So Hoyt moves in.
2: And it was beautiful. I mean, it was mirrored and all these lacquered walls and, and crazy colors, new age music playing. I mean, coming out of crazy New York and walking through that door, it really felt like you had been transported to another realm place was spotless and and one of the prerequisites to staying there is you had to clean constantly I mean just he was almost anal about it like you had to literally get the vacuum cleaner out every morning and do a whole once over the whole place and didn't ask for rent was it was a very uh, kind of smart play on his side you know because it kind of built this indebtedness to him
0: Now, Hoyt's shoulder may have been messed up, but he didn't destroy that perfectly symmetrical face. And
1: leave it to Frederick von Meers, who was always there to offer suggestions.
2: That was when Freddie basically said, I know the uh, head of the Ford Models Men's Division, I'll introduce you. And that's kind of how it all kind of started.
1: Now, mind you, Hoyt was still in college, just finishing his sophomore year.
2: Had you ever
0: had interest in acting slash modeling at all?
2: You know, no. I, I, I'd i done a couple school plays, so I'd always liked acting, uh, but I didn't take it seriously. But I had had one experience. Some catalog was shooting a catalog at Princeton. They were by the practice field, and they saw me running out, and they said, oh, we should bring, let's have a football player in this picture. It's like a tailgate shot. There was two male models there, and I just thought they were such prima donna dicks. I was like, Jesus, who are these guys thinking they're God's gift to the world? (laughs) I'm like, no. So that was my only experience thinking, like, I would never want to be one of those guys. But uh, when faced with the life crisis of I can't play football anymore, you know, I'm like 20 years old. And I'm like, well, I guess if I can't star in the football field, I guess I'll just try to be a star.
1: So he went to Ford Modeling and surprise, surprise, they took
2: me on. And three weeks later, I got introduced to Bruce Weber. Bruce Weber was the star maker.
0: Bruce Weber is the American fashion photographer who rose to prominence with his advertising images for Calvin Klein. Liz, do you remember the black and white photos of Marky e. Mark in his underwear?
1: Can't forget that, Tyler.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's Bruce Weber. He also shot a lot of images for Abercrombie and Fitch and GQ. Most of his work was in black and white and much of it was sexual in nature.
1: You just said sexual in nature. Also, can't forget that.
2: Bruce shot me in some, you know, some good jobs. And then I went back to college for my junior year. And that's when I started getting calls. Like, can you, you know, can you go to Milan on Tuesday? I'm like, I got a test on Tuesday. I can't go to Milan, you know, but it was this whole thing. And so when I went back the following summer, I started to work fairly consistently. And then again, I had to come back for senior year. But that whole stage of being available for a short time and then not being available, The fashion business loves stuff like that. You know, I seem harder to get, and so they wanted you more. And so by the time I graduated college, I literally just had work stacked up for the next six months. So my entry into the business was incredibly privileged. And I was always really uncomfortable about that because from my point of view, I didn't see that I brought anything that different to the table other than the fact that I was blonde and I could actually wear a suit.
1: Was it sexual in nature, Tyler?
0: Uh, sure, this—it was the most sexual in nature suit you've ever seen.
2: And I was very professional. You know, again, coming from my background, I was like, "I'm going to show up on time. I'm going to be polite. I'm going to try to be, you know, funny. I'm going to try. I'm going to. I quickly assessed that if they like you, they'll bring you back. The big first campaign was uh, Jeffrey Banks. Then I started doing from that all the Italian campaigns, for Versace and Foray. Eventually I got to do Ralph Lauren and, and Donna Karen. I mean, I, I was very lucky because that, like I said, I, I not only entered on it with a lot of ease that other models would get to do, but then it just didn't stop. Hey, welcome back. I'm Veronica Webb and this is E's 60 minute look at the sexy, sensational world of male models. Hoyt Richards is the highest paid male model in the world. I mean, reality. There's nothing like Hoyt in the industry. I mean, his track record is perfection in this industry. Cutting edge, classic, trends, no matter what happens, Hoyt is here. In my eyes, he's the king of male models. Indeed, if there is a reigning king of the fashion jungle, it's Hoyt Richards. While classic good looks are his bread and butter, it's his personality that helped him achieve supermodel status. In this business, the more that you can market yourself three-dimensionally, the better off you are. Because if you mark yourself in a two-dimensional sense as the best looking one, the one with the best body, or whatever, you immediately put yourself in a genre where you're gonna be replaceable.
1: You were, you were coined, you've been touted as the first male supermodel, am I correct here?
2: I think there's probably a, two or three that could fight for that title, but I won't fight for it. But uh, yeah, that has been said.
1: And what makes you go from model to supermodel? <laughs>
2: <laughs> a cape. Well, I tell you, I mean, it, more than anything, it was if you think of like I said, eras that you come into. Like like my if you think of it like a class uh, at college, my class that I entered into the business was the same time Cindy, Claudia, Naomi, Christy, all those girls entered at that same I met Christy Turnley at my first Ford Christmas party. And so I entered in at that era where that term supermodels became coined.
1: Who are your male contemporary supermodels?
2: (laughs) Well, there was uh, Mark. uh, What's Mark's last name? Uh, Mark, he's Dutch. It's funny how you don't know any of the men. But when he says Cindy, we all
1: know exactly who he's talking about. Mm
2: -hmm. Well, and and then one of my best friends who reached bigger status than all of us, you know, supermodels, was Fabio.
0: Ah, Fabio. He is, of course, referring to the famous Italian-American model Fabio Lanzoni Born in Milan, Italy Fabio is the son of a conveyor belt company owner And was discovered by a photographer While working out
1: He soon came to America And became a widely known supermodel In the 80s and 90s
0: With his square jaw, long flowing locks And ripped tan body I
1: feel like you should say that line in slow motion, Tyler
0: Ripped tan body Ripped tan body Fabio was featured as the model On nearly 500 romance books with titles such as Warrior's Woman, Scoundrels, Captive, Captive Rose, and my personal favorite, Savage Thunder.
1: We should start a Fabio covers only book club cult. You can be the leader, Tyler. Yes,
0: I will work on my abs. But titles with Fabio on the cover had a sales increase of over 60%. And maybe that's why. At the peak of his cover model days, he was doing 16 covers a day. And over 55 million books were sold with his image before 1992.
1: Maybe he should be the cover model for our show's logo. Write in and tell us
0: your thoughts. He was making $3,000 per hour in 1993, which is about $6,200 in today's currency. Also, he released an album, a musical album in 1994 called Fabio After Dark, which has 17 tracks of magic, Liz. Pure pure magic the subtitle music speaks for me when i cannot put my feelings into words
1: and is it
0: sexual in nature liz it is
1: oh yeah you know we have to play a song now right we do which one which one are we gonna play this
0: is perhaps my favorite this is the song when somebody loves somebody
2: everything seems so unreal There is no looking back Once again A love
1: attack Want somebody, love somebody Desperately. Everything comes out so naturally That is pure sexual energy in my ears, Tyler No wonder Fabio is who he is
0: Mmm, yeah
1: More recently, you might recognize Fabio as a spokesperson for, you won't believe this, I Can't Believe It's Not Butter.
0: She wanted to remember the love they shared for butter, but cholesterol took away their passion until.
2: I can't believe it's not butter. I can't believe it's not butter. The taste you love without the cholesterol. What
1: a work of art. I told you you wouldn't believe it.
0: Now 63 years old, Fabio is retired and owns over 300 dirt bikes and 16 dogs. And yes, dear listeners, you definitely want to stick around because Fabio makes a cameo in our third episode, Flowing Locks and All.
1: And now back to Hoyt, who has been slightly overshadowed here by his more famous best friend. A common theme, perhaps, in his youth.
2: Fabio it was one of the first models I met at Ford, and... He was really into working out, so I'd work out with Fabio a lot. We'd go to the clubbing together. I mean, Fabio's like walking into a club with Thor. You know, it's like, you know, I used to think I had it going on, but I would literally go out with Fabio and feel invisible.
0: Okay, so at this point in the story, Hoyt Richards had graduated from Princeton.
1: Now, Hoyt, bring us up to a timeline. What year are we in?
2: This is 85, 86, so I'm I'm like 25. I didn't really have a game plan. I hadn't discovered a passion yet.
1: So after college, Hoyt moves to New York City.
2: And
0: where does he live? Well, with Freddie, of course.
1: He never made a pass on you.
2: No, he didn't. And luckily, he had teed off on the idea of presenting himself as um, asexual, that you know, he was clearly had been a gay man, but he claimed he'd had this spiritual awakening and was now no longer interested. I mean, he would be attracted to people and he'd make a comment, but he would never make a pass at them. I never saw that. Freddie had this way of just engaging any and everyone, it seemed like, like this whirlpool of energy that you just got sucked up in.
1: So, okay, we need more about this Freddy guy. Like, right now, he's just this astrology dude who had access to a certain group of very important people and a lot of free shit to offer our guy, Hoyt. But what's his deal deal?
2: He was born Fred Meyer, and I believe that was spelled M-E-Y-E-R. And then he changed his name to Frederick von Meers, which is M-I-E-R. E-R-S. He is someone who tried so hard to move away from his roots and upbringing.
0: There is quite a bit of mystery around Mr. Mears and where he is actually from, but according to him, he was born a socialite.
2: So Freddie had been a model himself. Yeah, I don't think he was a very successful model, but he definitely modeled, and he eventually found a way to scam himself into the social register. When, when I met him, and he would even reference those things, but he'd be like, "Oh, I met the Duke of this, you know, or, or Prince so and so, or the Duchess of this." As we got involved with the group, and a lot of us were Ivy Leaguers, you know, even though he'd never gone to college, he would always go on and on and look. Oh, this one went to Princeton, or this one Yale, yeah, or this one to Harvard or Columbia. He would throw that out, but it would also shine a light away from what his past was, and he was rebuilding this kind of image of who he wanted to be by who he surrounded himself with. A, a lot of the entourage, there were a lot of kids my age. Like, it was it was definitely, he was in his 30s, and we were all in our late teens, early 20s.
1: This is another cult leader favorite tactic. They will often recruit people who possess traits that they do not have themselves, but wish that they did.
2: When I came to New York and met his entourage, the sidekick guy was this guy, John Andriotis. John was a very sincere seeker in that sense. You know, it was quite extraordinary. And John also had this, I guess you'd call photographic memory. I mean, he could recite scripture like I've never seen anyone ever. And we would have these kind of tea meetings after a night at Studio 54. John would just go on for hours just reciting scripture. I mean, it was incredible. And, and Frederick basically said that John was going to become an avatar in this life. And he was here to prepare him for that. And an avatar being the reincarnation of God, which is a very clever technique to say, I'm actually smarter than the Avatar, <laughs> you know, because you're saying, well, if I'm the one here to train him.
0: Like Hoyt said John was Freddie's right-hand man. He came from wealth, but apparently gave it all up to serve a life for God. But John needed someone to help him on this path.
1: And he found it in Freddie,
2: who would, would present himself as the guy that was here to train the next incarnation of God.
0: So you have Freddie with his entourage. And, and the,
2: the question th- becomes, well, when did it really become a cult, right? because there has to be some sort of catalyst. So what's the catalyst? Well, John, you know, who's the sidekick, has been reaching out to uh, all these other metaphysical writers and he he finds this woman Ruth Montgomery.
0: Ruth Montgomery was an accomplished political journalist. In fact, She was the first female in the Washington Bureau of the New York Daily News in 1934. She was also the press attache for Richard Nixon and was the president of the Women's National Press Club.
1: But in the late 60s, she meets and befriends this Florida-born psychic.
2: Arthur Ford, that's his name.
0: And Arthur was quite a celebrity in the 1920s when traveling mentalism shows were all the rage. He claimed to have duplicated all of Jesus's miracles, uh, apart from the raising of the dead.
1: Turning water into wine is a pretty great party trick, especially for broke young boys, I would imagine.
0: Arthur was, however, very controversial, and many magicians claimed what he was doing was simply magic tricks, posed as supernatural powers. You
1: don't say.
0: Regardless, Ruth Montgomery meets him and starts a friendship with him, and in 1971, Arthur passes away.
1: But his abilities apparently don't, because now Ruth's caught the bug
2: she starts having these encounters where she would go in front of her typewriter and she'd like go in a trance and she would start typing. And they called it She called it automatic writing. And so it was Arthur and her guides were the people operating from the other side, giving her information through this automatic typing. And the pattern was she would, be, she would get typed or she would send a question to them and they would answer it. And this process, she had written eight or nine metaphysical books that were bestsellers. So John seeks her out and says, you've got to meet my fearless leader, Frederick. He's incredible. So she asks the guides about Frederick and totally validates everything about him and goes as far as in the new book that she's writing called Aliens Among Us. She puts four chapters on Frederick.
1: To be fair, Freddie definitely looks like an alien. And yes, I'm saying that with all the judgment in the world.
2: Okay, so...
0: Look, so I actually found a copy of the book, Aliens Among Us. It was published in 1985. Yeah, I ordered it online from a book dealer in Arkansas. It was like four bucks or something. I mean, it is a tattered copy. And whoever owned this had marked it up like it was holy scripture. Wow. I mean, they highlighted all kinds of passages in it. It's incredible. It's just kind of amazing to read.
1: We will put some pictures of this book on our Instagram so you guys can check it out.
0: On the cover, it says, dazzling true testimony that extraterrestrials are on Earth, about to usher in the new age.
1: It's so funny that that was 1985, because I feel like a lot of people would agree with that same sentiment in 2023.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so in the book, Ruth describes her first meeting with Freddie, or <clears throat> Frederick.
1: I was prepared to welcome a small, dark-complexioned man who would probably be wearing swami robes. Instead, I beheld the most beautiful specimen of manhood imaginable, with perfect features, sparkling blue eyes, blonde hair, and a lithe physique garbed in preppy denims. And from the lips of this 37-year-old aristocrat poured a steady stream of loving philosophy that, if heeded by all humanity, could revolutionize the vibrations of planet Earth. Holy mother, mother mm-hmm. of holy fuck! Yeah, that it's is fantastic, crazy. <laughs>
0: yeah, and the book goes on to describe the life of Frederick, who, that according to him, of course, he was in a previous life a high priest in ancient India, and he had helped plan and build the temple of Giza. In this existence, however, he claimed to be born of high society on Christmas Day in 1946. His parents died when he was four years old, and he spent most of his time with his godmother, who helped him travel through Europe, where he met kings and queens.
1: But the most essential part of his life occurred in January of 1978, when, after a period of deep depression, almost to the point of suicide, he was alone in his New York City apartment, and in vivid flashes, he saw past lives, and over the course of a week, he was visited by three beings who revealed deep secrets to him.
0: And this is a direct quote from him. Overnight, I became adept in the science of Hindu astrology. I knew that I had come from Arcturus, where I had lived in a hydrogen light body.
1: These crazy cult leaders, how many times have we heard that they were born gifted or became an expert in just three days? You guys, expertise isn't just randomly bestowed on you overnight from a visit from a goddamn fairy godmother. I call bullshit."
0: There's more, Liz. He also said in a series of visions he saw, quote, the coming wars, the destruction of New York City, my own mission, and the future of Earth. Ruth, in the book, then says, At this point I asked the guides whether the above summary was factual, and they wrote, The account by Frederick is basically correct.
1: Oh, my girl, Ruth. You are not helping us, Ruth.
0: The book then lays out a bit about Freddie's whole belief system, but we'll let Hoyt fill you in on that.
2: Part of the belief system was that we are not limited as souls to Earth, that there's other realms and planets and stars where you have existence. So he um, eventually came to the conclusion that the place in the universe that he considered to be his home was the star, Octurus. Naturally. And Octurus just happened to be the spiritual center of the universe, by chance.
0: Cool coincidence.
2: And uh, because that was home, and that's where he had this group of friends, they, in essence, looked down on Earth and said, my God, Earth's really going through some rough times. We should send down a team to go help out. And he and his friends agreed to do that.
1: Sorry, you lost me for a sec. What, friends?
0: Okay, well, this is a tough one to explain. I did read a lot of this book, Liz. But the simplest way to put it is that basically a bunch of souls were living on this star. They were hydrogen bodies, and they came down to Earth to take over other people's real bodies. But look, worry not. We explain more of this in Episode 2.
2: The catch was, and this is where the story gets fun, only he would remember this. The other friends would not, so he would have to go find the other Arcturians and realign the team so that we could fulfill the duty that we had pledged to do when we were back in Arcturus.
0: Okay, so Arcturus is a real star. In fact, it is one of the brightest stars in the galaxy.
1: The sun, of course, being the brightest star.
0: Because, of course, the sun is a star.
1: There are literal people driving in their cars right now going, the sun is a star? Oh, shit, I guess I was high that day in science class.
0: So Arcturus has a surface temperature of about 4,200 Kelvin. By comparison, our sun's surface temperature is about 5,700 Kelvin.
1: Which means that Arcturus is not as hot as the sun, but it's slightly hotter than Tucson.
0: But what Freddie said is that the Arcturians were actually hydrogen light bodies, and they were able to live in the heat of Arcturus.
2: He was a very effective storyteller, and he couched it with this absolute belief behind it. And you're just like, okay, yeah, just, just taking it all in, yeah, that's clearly what we are.
0: Frederick claimed that once he found all the Arcturians on Earth, they would go back and live in that star until summoned again to Earth for another life.
1: And as ridiculous as that all may sound, when you're hanging out with a group of friends and the group leader tells everyone they're part of the cool club but you, well, you feel left out. Who doesn't want to be in the cool
2: club? I was dying to be told I was Arcturian because I had been left out. And then it wasn't until my... I think it was my senior year in college where I finally got the green light that I was Arcturian.
1: Cult leaders basically invented FOMO.
0: All of the stuff is a bit crazy, and all of it is laid out in great detail in Aliens Among Us, including one chapter.
2: One chapter being Frederick and his friends, which I get to be in.
0: That particular chapter is actually called Frederick's Arcturial Friends, and in it, Ruth describes each of the entourage, including our man Hoyt, whom she quotes. My professional name is Hoyt Richards, and my success has been fortunate, he says. But the true success story has been my increased spiritual awakening since I have been working with Frederick. He has taught me to make my own decisions in life, but always to be aware of the repercussions. We must remember our original purpose on this planet, to see God and love him. Frederick is devoting his life to this service and I am honored to be able to serve and help.
2: I wish I uh, could live that one down but yeah we're, so we're all in in that book. Uh, you know I always tell people I will never beat myself up for what I signed up for because it was a wonderful idea and it was very much about seeking enlightenment, becoming the best version of yourself becoming uh, less, you know, selfish, more, more service-oriented. But, yeah, I mean, that was really, wasn't anything groundbreaking as far as, you know, and, and, and as far as providing context, everybody was into something back then. I mean, the, the 80s in New York certainly was, you know, yoga was just kind of emerging. All these kind of, you know, uh, Est was around. Um, there was all this kind of self-improvement type stuff that was happening.
1: We hear that a lot. You know, it was the 60s, it was the 80s, it was the 90s. I think the takeaway is that no matter what the era, there is always some kind of self improvement thing going around.
0: And there will always be a cult leader ready and available to take advantage of that.
1: Anything else in that book, Tyler?
0: No, there's a ton in the book. Too much to go into, but there is a chapter of writings from John and Frederick. It is heavily highlighted. So let me open the book here. Your attention is your divine director. Let it be free. By freeing our attention from limitation, we are able to attune to any thought vibration that we desire, and that will become our outer reality. Thus, we are dealing with a universe of vibratory action. Everything is energy. It just goes on and on. And then later on, on page 167, it says, this is from John, who says, It is true that our space brothers and sisters have arrived, and we are they
1: and the beautiful, smart, athletic, and humble Hoy Richards? He was a space brother.
2: I'd moved into Frederick's apartment right after college, and then two months later, the book hits, and that's when everything starts changing. From, you know, just being in Manhattan, kind of going to parties and being fabulous, we're, we're now out to 50 plus countries. We're getting letters from all over the world, people wanting help.
0: People who have read this book and are now seeking out Freddie's guidance and wisdom.
1: And so it was time that this group of aliens on Earth stepped it up a notch. I mean, they didn't even have a good name, for Christ's sake. What kind of cult are they?
2: And that's when we created the name Eternal Values. And the whole game changed to that point. And now it's like, oh my God, it's really happening. We are going to be leaders of the, the new age...
1: And that is the end of part 1 of Hoyt Richard's story.
0: Join us next week for the Actually part two. we
1: we we dropped two episodes today, so Oh,
0: that's right.
1: You can just start listening to part 2 right now. You don't even have to wait. But
0: just in case, here's a taste of what's to come.
2: I literally got to the point where I would step on a plane and I would think to myself, I wish I could just announce to everyone here they don't have to worry. Because I've got such important work I'm going to do on this lifetime. Everyone on the plane is safe. You're all safe. And that's how I used to think.
0: Thank you all for listening. Again, it feels so good to be back.
1: That was very sexual in nature, Tyler, the way you just said that.
0: I'm Tyler Meesum.
1: And I'm Liz Iacuzzi. And it does, you guys, it feels really good to be back.
0: For those who want to see pictures of Hoyt's modeling days, we have some pics on our Instagram.
1: For those who want, (laughs) you mean everybody? (laughs) Come on. But guys, if you do, check out the Instagram, share it. Share it with your fans, share it with your followers. Keep this word spreading so we can keep making sexual in nature content for you. You have to let it go. Liz, <laughs> never, never letting that go. We know you want to see those photos of super tan Hoyt. I know I do. Well, Tyler, they're up on our Instagram at Was I an Occult? You're welcome.
0: And for more bonus content and video from today's episode, check out our Patreon, Patreon.com/ Was I an Occult,
1: or click the link in our show notes.
0: Trust us, it's worth it. Was I an Occult is written, produced, and hosted by the new mommy, Liz Iacuzzi, and the old daddy, Tyler Mason. The show is also produced and edited by the dog mommy, Kristen Vermilia.
1: Was I an Occult is proud to support the hashtag IGOTOUT project, which empowers survivors of cultic abuse to share their stories online as a catalyst for education, prevention, and healing. Learn more at IGOTOUT.org.